America where money grows on trees <laughs> and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceive when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. But I quickly realized how wrong I was uh, when I, the first night I stayed at my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people wear masks, ring doorbells, and said, trick or treat. <laughs> I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came to America a few months after me, and we married the next year. I also assumed just because we were in love, we will simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then. After years of unresolved issue and self-centered living, our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that same year, May 15th, 1993, well, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made an announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort my wife, but I also accused her making our son gay. My son Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it besides, isn't it more important to be happy but my wife respond quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have come me with a knife. It would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville where well, I plan to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. 
with only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister. I bought on the train thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never be much a reader. On the train, I began to read a pamphlet which explained the plan of salvation that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible as like I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very excited. She told me, your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. I told her, this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has got on her side. But what I realized, her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know God was also work on me. So I started to go to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF. Bible Study Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding and love for God and His Word. While we'll study the Bible in my church and BSF, I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue, kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to Himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. As our son Christopher walked further and further away from God. For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese-American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. You see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan cannot take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house, at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. 
with pornography fueling my desires. I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. I was living in Louisville, Kentucky, pursuing my doctorate in dentistry. And there, I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs, and to be clear, not all gays and lesbians do drugs. Some do, some don't, but that is part of my story. When I tell you it, I have to be honest, but I also need to remind you, when you encounter Christ, He'll impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, and um, I eventually, I started selling drugs, and I began selling, and I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. You see, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So, my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, and in my mind, I thought, great, they're going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parents would do anyway? To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mom looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. See, my mom knew that when it comes to her children, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus, even more important than education, even more important than career. But you know, the sad reality is many people in America may go and worship God on Sunday, but then they'll return home and worship idols, the idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k. And in essence, we are often forcing our children to do the same. How, you may ask? How much emphasis are we putting on our children on a weekly basis, getting their homework done, getting a better grade, getting into good school? While Christian parents be putting, should be putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis, upon our children following Jesus. It's no wonder why many children grow up in church, go off to college, and they leave their faith behind because maybe they weren't really worshiping God in the first place. But if I could be honest with you, I was not happy about my mom's decision. Because I felt she was on, not on my side, but on the school side. So I moved further away from them to the bright lights in big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community. And I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator, because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week. 
and I filled them with the encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I signed, love you forever, mom. But little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash. My wife and I knew the only way if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta. So we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused, but I leave it on his counter anyway and walk out the door. And we found out as soon as we leave the door, he took my Bible and threw it into the trash. It was more than obvious that he's totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on our own hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over 100 prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we all cry out to God for our son Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold but very dangerous prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years. Once fasted 39 days for our son Christopher. She would literally spend hours inside her prayer closet each morning on her knee, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, praying for herself, for me, and for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers. I was staying in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stay in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede, though it may take years. But I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. Oswald Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. 
we are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live all those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answer to prayer doesn't come quickly, and this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with their prayers because she knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that got me more into trouble than anything else. But you know what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. You remember she loved bold prayers? Well, she had prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of my friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. <laughs> so I was down to the bottom of the list. And I did not want to make that phone call. And I was just imagining the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice how Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. He's not saying that it's God's wrath, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out His grace and drawing me to Himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. 
So she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears. She knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them. One by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone happened to be a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place compared to before, and he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list. And after my time in prison, this list of blessings is now longer and taller than she is, both sides. A few days after that, I was walking around the cell block and really, I, I was doing all that I could to stay to myself. I mean, think about it. I did not want to mingle with those really, really bad people, you know, those criminals. <laughs> and I passed by this garbage can. And if you've never been to jail before, they don't take the trash out every day in jail. So the can was overflowing with garbage. It reeked. Flies were circling around it. And I thought to myself, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell, and I opened up that good book for the first time I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking this is the Word of God, and I certainly wasn't thinking this is the answer. I actually just thought, I've got tons of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and, I, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The prison guards handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shoveled into her office. She sat me down, shut the door behind me, and I knew something wasn't right. 
She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His silent and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. A verdict I could not accept. Hang on the phone, the pains of grief torn at my broken heart like a knife. Endlessly, I stumble up the steps and drag my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as stinging tears blur my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet string of a hymn filled my ears and repeat over and over. It is well, it is well with my soul. After receiving that devastating news, 
I was in my prison cell all by myself and just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I lie there in the metal bunk and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something else in the corner and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation Israel to tell me that if God could have a plan for Israel in rebellion, in exile, he might even have a plan for me in prison. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that at that moment, I said a sinner's prayer. I got down on my knees and everything after that was perfect, like no more problems, no more struggles. But that's far from the truth. God began convicting me of my dependencies, my idols, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. I'm in prison for drugs. That's the most obvious. But you know, within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols, and there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible, and it's so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. But as I kept reading, I came across some passages through in the Old Testament, through in the New Testament, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was. So I thought, I, I need to ask someone for their opinion, someone who's actually studied the Bible, even gone to cemetery, seminary. And I thought, the chaplain. So I went to a chaplain, I asked him his opinion, and to my surprise, the chaplain actually told me the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. And he even gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book with the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But it was God's indwelling Holy Spirit that convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God and His Word. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find anything that might bless a monogamous same-sex relationship. I wanted my cake and eat it too, don't we all? Who wants to change? So I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, 
And I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and His Word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, and that's true. But don't we as sinners sometimes like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who probably say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. I had thought in the past, before I became a Christian, that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become a heterosexual. And what does that mean? Well, I had to be sexually attracted to women. Actually, the more sexually attracted I were to lots of women, the more of a Christian I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation and resist sin. So actually, heterosexuality, it's the correct direction, but too broad. And if you think about it, God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. It's the wrong category. Therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. For the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but I just need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life, and He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling remained the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, 
God did another miracle, and he shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I needed to learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called home, collected my parents, and I told them, I think God's calling me into ministry. And then I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time called Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited when I got it, tore it over and began filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who, who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison, but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So amazingly, I was accepted. I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's, in biblical exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School with Pastor Brandon. We graduated in 2007 together. And then in 2014, I was able to get my doctorate of ministry. And then back in 2011, I had the incredible honor of co-authoring a book with my mom called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. So we wrote it together. She wrote chapter one. I wrote chapter two. She wrote, she wrote all the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters because we wanted to tell you from our own voice the same story told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal. And what's so amazing is how God and His power and His grace brought us all back together. This book now is actually being used as a textbook in Christian high schools. Who would have thought our memoir would be used as a textbook, but it makes sense. Parents, I hope you realize this. Our kids are being inundated with resources on sexuality, intentionally flooded with resources, stories on sexuality and gender that are contrary to God. Make no mistake. There is a very purposeful action to retrain the minds of our children to not think in the ways of God or your ways, but in the ways of the world. On YouTube, that's what kids mainly are watching today, and it is full of people that, you, you know what they call YouTube stars? Anyone know what they're called? influencers. Isn't it interesting, the word that it is such an accurate term? They're not just stars, they're influencers. And I just looked at like the majority of the top influencers. You'd be surprised at how many are LGBTQ+. And they're winsome and engaging, and their stories are heart-wrenching and, and interesting. And they all talk about how I'm so happy to finally be who, who I am. God doesn't want us to be happy. He wants us to be holy. Parents, don't, 
don't just want your kids to be happy. Pray your kids would be holy, that they would be like Christ. And so, you know, what we hear going on in, in, in our schools, there's one thing that I'm very, very convinced about. It's not the job of our public schools to teach our children about sex. I don't know if you heard me. Let me say this again. It's not the job of our public schools to teach our children about sex. Amen? And it's not even the job of Hollywood or YouTube to teach our kids about sex. It's not even the primary responsibility of our youth pastor to teach your kids about sex. I, they better talk about biblical sexuality in youth group, and, and I think it's better that you don't pull them out, because when you pull them out, you know what that communicates? It communicates to your kid that you don't want them to learn about biblical sexuality from the church. You want them to learn it from the world. You know whose shoulders rest the main responsibility to teach children about sex? You know who it is? Parents. Now I'm going to add something. Not just parents. You know who else? Grandparents. Any grandparents in here? Any great-grandparents in here? You know why I'm adding you? You have too much time on your hands. <laughs> but really, think back, grandparents, great-grandparents, when you were younger, kids, teenagers. How often did you listen to your parents at that age? Maybe, grandparents, you have more of a listening ear to your grandkids than the parents do. Are we using it to throw a lifeline to our children who are drowning in a tsunami of lies? Are we doing that? I, I gave this challenge, I said this in the first service, in Oklahoma, so much more rurally even than this. And I gave this challenge at this rural church, and this grandmother made a beeline toward a book table, and she said, I need 10 books. And I was like, wow, you just need one. No, young man, I need 10, one for myself, nine for my grandchildren. I'm going to mail every single one of them a book. I'm not taking a chance. I'm going to read it with them, and then I'm going to discuss it with them. A grandmother. That's an adult that's taking seriously the God-given responsibility we, ha we all have to equip, not expose, but equip them with biblical sexuality because silence, my friends, is no longer an option. My newest book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, is where I help because some of you parents are like, well, I don't know what to say. I, I know what to say. Well, this is sin. This is wrong. Don't do this. Don't do this. But our messages on biblical sexuality can't just be No. A Christian life can't be built on God's no. What is God's yes? So my book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, helps us dig, dig, dig deeper on what is God's yes. It's quite simply two paths. When you are single, be sexually abstinent. Or when you are married, biblically married, be faithful to your spouse. So holy sexuality, quite simply, is chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage, and that is good news for all. Amazingly, God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away, 
And my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. And then if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has a sense of humor because he's brought me back to Moody where I had been teaching in the Bible department for the past 12 years. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? But God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. You know, I look back upon the years that we have lived far, far apart from Christ, and we've made some bad decisions, some of those decisions that have resulted in some lasting consequences, one of those being HIV positive. But you know, I realized something. I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. Not one person in this room, young or old, has ever been promised tomorrow here on this good earth. But don't we take it for granted? You know, it took contracting this virus, which has no cure. It took contracting this virus for me to realize a very important truth. That as a child of God, I must live with the sense of urgency. Can I tell you something? You know, this, this world we're living in today, 2021, it's a crazy world, isn't it? This world we're living today, with all that's going on in government, with all that's going around in our nation, around the world, with virus shootings, with earthquakes, tsunamis. When I look at the world today, you know what I'm convinced of? We don't need more good Christians. A good Christian who might go to church every Sunday. They're nice people, a good person, but actually doing little for the kingdom of God. We don't need more of those good Christians. You know what we need more of? You know what this world demands? Our great Christians. Christians who do not settle for mediocrity. Christians who don't care what the person on the left says or the person on the right says, but they're living for an audience of one. Christians who know that they've been crucified with Christ and they no longer, no longer live, but Christ lives in them. Christians who are living with a sense of urgency. God has given us all one life to live, not to squander it chasing the futile things of this world, but chasing after Jesus and telling others about Him. Because whether you're ready or not, there will come one day in the blink of an eye where every one of us will stand before our God our Creator, and I hope He can look at you face to face and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, O God. That even when we were faithless, you remained faithful. Thank you, Father, that though we have ran from you, you continue to run to us. Lord, would you forgive us that we too often chase after the ways of the world that lead to nothing, emptiness. Help us, Lord God, to live with a sense of urgency. Father, we look forward to that day when we can see you face to face. Help us to love you more than life. For it is in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen.